Well, please turn your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 1, as we continue to look at the story of the birth of Jesus. Luke chapter 1, we're going to be reading verses 26 through 38. And please stand with me in honor of God's word as we read it together this morning. Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes this, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren, for nothing, nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. You may be seated. Let's pray as we begin our time of study of God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you just uh, this morning for what a, a great worship we've had. We thank you for the, the children who have been involved in, in helping lead us to you today. And we pray that you would continue to, to be with those children, be with their Sunday school teachers. We pray for the children who were dedicated this morning and their parents. We pray that the good news of your son, Jesus Christ, the good news that, that we can have relationship with you through faith in him alone, we, we pray that that good news would just be emblazoned upon all that we do, that, that it would be clearly communicated to our children, to ourselves, to those who visit. We pray now that as we look at this text, you would help us understand more fully your purpose is for us, and we pray this in your son Jesus' name, for your glory, amen. One of the challenges for us as we come to a passage like Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38, one of the challenges, the obstacles for us in understanding it fully is, is actually how familiar we are already with the story. So when we come to Luke chapter 1, and we, we read about the angel Gabriel and his conversation with Mary, it's it's easy for us to immediately jump forward in the story. We see not just Gabriel standing before Mary, but we see the, the angel Gabriel standing before Joseph, and we think of the wise men and the shepherds and the manger, and, and all the stories of Christmas kind of get blended together, and it's hard sometimes for us just to focus on this story that's before us right now in, these path, in this verse, these verses. Not only do we think of the whole Christmas story, but as we see Gabriel talking to to Mary, we also think of all the other things we know about Jesus, his his life, his ministry, the miracles that he'll perform, the disciples that he'll call. What I'd like you to do with me this morning as we 
look at this passage is, is this. Now, try to concentrate on this story from the perspective of Mary. Uh, pretend that you know for a moment that you know nothing else about the, the life of Christ that would, to fall, that would be to, to follow, but simply focus on this story from the perspective of Mary, the words of the angel as, as Mary hears them. And, and here's what I want us to do. What we're going to do is we're just going to simply talk about the story for our first little bit of time together. We're just going to, to walk through this story. Then, after we've discussed the elements of the story, we're going to draw some principles out from this story. Uh, three principles that I believe will help us apply the truths in our own life. Well, let's, let's just kind of dig right in there and begin talking about the story. Remember last week, we saw Zechariah. Zechariah and the angel Gabriel were standing in the holy place of the temple. Zechariah and the angel had this, Gabriel had this conversation. Zechariah leaves the holy place, and he goes back to his wife, and, and now they're pregnant. They've been pregnant for, for five months, six months, whenever this story starts. And remember, Elizabeth sequesters herself. And so Zechariah, the angel, talking in the holy place. Zechariah leaves the holy place and goes back to his wife. The angel Gabriel also leaves the holy place in the temple. He leaves and he returns. Remember, in verse 19, he said that he stood in the presence of God. The angel of Gabriel leaves the holy place and he goes and returns to the presence of God, the, the most holy of all places that we can, that, that's even beyond our imagination. That's where Gabriel returns to. Now, it's been six months since Elizabeth has conceived. She's six months along in her pregnancy and the angel of Gabriel is sent from the presence of God, the most holy of all places imaginable, to a place that's in some ways as far removed from heaven as you can imagine. You think of all the, the majesty and the splendor of heaven, Gabriel is sent from that, from the presence of God, to this town called Nazareth. And Nazareth is a, a no-account little town, maybe two, 3,000 people tops. In fact, it's nowhere mentioned in the Old Testament. It's not mentioned in any contemporary writings. The first time that Nazareth is ever recorded in history that we know of is in the gospel accounts. So Gabriel leaves the, the presence of God in heaven and is sent to this no-account town, Nazareth in Galilee. And Luke tells us he's sent to a virgin, to a young woman, who is engaged to be married to Joseph, and this virgin's name, Luke tells us, is Mary. You think about your perceptions that you have of this person, Mary. When we think about her, we often think of this young woman in her 20s, or you know, whenever we see the, the postcards with Mary on there, she looks like she's in her 20s or, or so. Not the case. This is a young girl. She's probably 12 and a half to 14 years old. She's a kid. And the angel Gabriel is sent from the presence of God to this no-account town, Nazareth, and comes in to Mary's house and is standing before Mary. And listen to this interaction between the angel Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and this little girl, Mary. And you're going to see some things about the character of Mary from this interaction. Verse 28, the angel says to her, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. 
what do we see about Mary here? Well, first of all, listen to what the angel tells us about her. He says, greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. Mary is a, a special person. Now, sometimes, uh, some translations have, have taken the words the angel speaks here, and they've, they've kind of mistranslated them. Maybe you've heard that expression that's, that comes from the Latin Vulgate, a Latin translation of this. It says, uh, Hail Mary, full of grace, is what sometimes this greeting has been translated. That's the wrong understanding. What that translation says is this. It, it's like the angel saying, hey, Mary, you're this, this person that's this, this, this big container full of grace. And, and there's even been some theologies that have, that have uh, been derived from that where, they, where people pray to Mary, asking her to, to give them the grace that she has stored within herself. That's not what the angel's saying. He is saying that she's a very special person, however. He says, the Lord is with you. Because the Lord is with you, you're favored. That is, instead of being this container of grace, you are, God's grace is being bestowed upon you. The Lord is with you. You're, you're favored by God. Greetings, Mary. God's favor, his grace is upon you. And uh, Mary, as is uh, customary in encounters with angels, uh, she's troubled. <laughs> Zechariah was troubled and, and afraid last week. Mary, as is typical when you're going to encounter an angel, uh, she's troubled and afraid as well. But listen to what else the text tells us about Mary. Something very interesting about her character. Even while she's encountering this angel and is troubled within herself, what else does the text tell us about her? It says that she was trying to discern what sort of greeting this might be. That phrase, try to discern, you could also say she was, she was pondering. She was thinking about. She was meditating upon. So here this, this angel appears, and uh, she's troubled, but at the same time, she's a thinker. She's pondering. She's wondering, what's the theological significance of, of what it means to be favored by God? What does it mean that his grace is upon me? What does it mean that, that I've found favor with him, that he's with me? We're going to see next week a lot more about the character of Mary. We're going to, to learn a lot more about her abilities and her theological acumen, but, but just for today, trust me on this, Mary is a thinker. Every time we encounter her in Scripture, she's pondering, she's thinking, she's processing. Last week, remember we saw Zechariah. Zechariah allows his, his theology to sometimes be overwhelmed by his experiences. Mary is taking her experiences, again, we're going to see this more next week, and she's thinking about them theologically. She says, okay, here's God's revelation to me now, how does that apply to these experiences that I'm going through? Mary is a special young lady, remarkable young lady. goes on. She's trying to, to think about what sort of greeting this might be. What does it mean that I'm favored, that God's grace is upon me? What does it mean that the Lord is with me? She's scared out of her mind, perhaps, and yet at the same time she's trying to think through what this greeting would be. And listen to what the angel says next. He gives this announcement to her. The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. And I, I wonder if angels just like get that printed on a business card. Okay, first thing, don't be afraid. And then they go on to what they're going to say. It says, don't be afraid, Mary. Why? Again, you found favor with God. God's grace is upon you. And then he gives her this startling news. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Gabriel gives her this very exciting news, perhaps, you're pregnant, and then he kind of 
answers the two most important questions that a parent often has when they find out that they're expecting. What's the gender, boy? What's the name, Jesus? Whitney and I, whenever we had our, our sons, uh, struggled with the naming aspect of, of the child. In fact, with, with Austin, we were in the hospital walking up and down the hallway. Whitney's in labor, and I have a name book in my hand. You know, What about this? What about that? And we kind of thought about Austin, but didn't know for sure. With Noah, with our son Noah, uh, we had told everyone that his name was going to need to be Drew. And uh, then we just kind of thought, nah, not Drew. How about Noah? And uh, we forgot to tell everyone. And so we, we called our families after Noah had been born and said, uh, hey, uh, Noah's here. And they said, what have you guys done with Drew? And, uh, you know, oh, yeah, right, we forgot that we had told you that. Look, the angel says, look, his name is Jesus. Yahweh saves. God saves. The name has meaning and significance. And now here, here he's going to tell about the ministry of Jesus. And as I read these verses, pretend that you're in Mary's sandals, and you've never heard another word about Jesus. Pretend this is the, the only revelation you have concerning this, this child that's going to be born and, and what his ministry is. Think about it from her perspective. Listen to what he says about Jesus. He will be great. Great was a word that was often used in reference to God in the Old Testament. He will be great. Furthermore, he will be called Son of the Most High. The Most High was a, a phrase that referred to God. You see it later in verse 35. Most High refers to God. This son that you're having, he's going to be Son of the Most High. He's, he's going to have his, his essence, his character. He's going to have this, this regal, this reign. And then listen to what he says about the reign. Listen to what the angel tells her about the reign of this son that she's going to, be, to, to have. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and ever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now Mary, we're going to see next week, is a very theologically astute person. She knows her Old Testament, and so she would know the significance of this phrase, throne of his father, David. In fact, keep your finger there in Luke chapter 1, and turn back with me to, to 2 Samuel chapter 7. God had already revealed that there would be a, a place for a king, and the Mosaic law, there are some stipulations for the type of king that, that Israel will have, but the nature of the kingship takes a dramatic turn during the reign of David. God reveals some amazing things to David about the nature of the reign of this future king. Listen to what he tells David through Nathan the prophet in 1 Samuel chapter 7. He says this in verse 12, verse 12 of 2 Samuel 7, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom goes on in verse 16, in your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So God makes this covenant with David. Look, David, uh, I'm going to establish your kingdom. Your descendants will, will reign on, as, as uh, kings over a kingdom forever on into eternity. Listen to what later, uh, you can turn over to Psalm, uh, Psalm 
89. Psalm 89, you think, well, well what about if, if David's descendants were disobedient? Does, does that negate this covenant that God makes with David? No, God says it doesn't. Psalm 89, in fact, God makes allowances for what's going to happen when there's disobedience. This is Psalm 89, verse 30. He's talking about David, and he says, if David's descendants forsake my law, and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression. Okay, so the discipline of the Lord will occur for transgression. But, verse 33, I will not remove him from my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the words that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me, like the moon, it shall be established forever in faithful witness in the skies. Mary would have known this promise of the Davidic king. She would have known that God had, had made such a promise. Jeremiah chapter 23 you can either turn there or write this one down. Verses 5 and 6, this idea of the Davidic king continues, this messianic king. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely, and this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. So a person who was knowledgeable of God's promises would have known what it meant for there to be a king who was given the throne of David. Herod, the contemporary of Jesus here, had a desire to be that king. Part of his work in rebuilding the, the temple of, of Solomon had been to, to, to set himself self up and establish himself up as that king. God tells Mary, you are going to be the mother of this king, this king that is my, my promised king, the messianic king. And furthermore, this king, this king of David, is going to have this kingdom, and it's going to be a kingdom that has no end. That's beyond our comprehension, isn't it? All the kingdoms that have ever come before us, the empires, the, the Babylonian empire, the, the Persian empire, uh, the Roman empire, the, the Mayan empire, all empires have had a, a finite beginning and a finite end. There was a moment in time where these empires seemed to, to reign over all the earth and be able to, to execute their, their desires at their will, and yet all those kingdoms came to an end. Our country, is as amazing as the things that have taken place in our, our country are, there, has been a, there was a finite beginning to our country, and though we don't know when, there's going to be a finite end to our kingdom our country, our nation. We know that because there's coming a kingdom and a king that's going to reign over all. Mary is told that she is going to be the mother of this king. And then Mary responds this way in verse 34. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And you say, well, that sounds very familiar to something that happened last week. A little deja vu here. Remember the angel told Zechariah about this son, and, and Zechariah said this, how will I, what? How will I know? How will I know? How will I have knowledge, be certain that the things you're saying are true? And he says, because I'm old, and my wife is old and barren, advanced in years. 
on the surface, those questions may seem similar. Let me tell you why I believe they're radically different. Zechariah's question is this. Look, uh, angel, you've given me this revelation. You've told me what's going to happen. I have some doubts. How will I know that this is going to take place? Here's my experience. Here's what you've told me. How can you make sure that my experience is trumped by what you've revealed to me? I need some sort of something to go on here. Mary's question, I believe, is fundamentally different. Remember the character of Mary. She's a thinker. She's a ponderer. She's also someone who is faithful. I believe her question is this. I believe that what you're saying is true. I would just like to know how this is going to happen. I have some biological questions for you. I'm not quite sure how this is going to take place. Will you please tell me? I believe that that's the heart of her question because of the way the angel responds. He doesn't give her immediately a sign, here's how you're going to to know that this is going to take place. He answers the question that she has. Now, I don't want to to get off in too much of a a tangent here, but I think we can glean a principle from this. I believe that it's not wrong to ask God questions that are born of faith. Look, God, um, this is your revelation. This is what I'm experiencing can you please help me understand how my experiences are, are in line with your word? I trust your word. I believe your word. I'm having some trouble understanding how to live according to your word. Can you help me understand how this is going to take place? That's the question, the essence of the question that Mary has. And, and listen to how the angel responds. He says this, verse 35, the angel answered her, the, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and therefore the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. J.C. Ryle, as as he's talking about this this passage, the miracle of the incarnation, says these words. He he says, and I believe he's right, he says this, we must regard the incarnation with holy reverence. There's a lot about the actual process of the incarnation that, even though I believe it's partly answered here, isn't answered fully. J.C. Ryle says, you know, the things that that aren't revealed to us, we shouldn't get into uh, fruitless speculation about. He says, here's what we should understand. We should understand this. It's enough for us to know that the Word became flesh, John 1.14. It's enough to know that a real body was prepared for Christ, Hebrews 10.5, that he took part of our flesh and blood, Hebrews 2.14, that he was born of a woman, Galatians 4.4. That's the essence of the incarnation. And if you want to make sure that you have a right understanding of the person of Jesus Christ and his nature, there are two truths that you have to affirm that are both presented to us clearly as Gabriel talks to Mary about the miracle of the incarnation. The first truth is this, Jesus Christ is absolutely 100% fully God. He is the Son of God. He's the Son of the Most High. His name is Jesus God saves. And so to to deny the full deity of of Christ is to commit heresy. At the same time, the the second truth that we must affirm is that Jesus Christ, through the process of the the incarnation, became 100% fully man at the same time. Those are two truths that you must affirm as you come to the person of Jesus Christ. He is fully God and fully man. 
The angel continues, and even though Mary didn't ask for a sign, the angel gives her one, the same sign that he gave Zechariah, or the, the same thing that he told Zechariah. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. And then listen to this verse, because I believe this verse is the verse of the passage that helps us understand what the angel is trying to communicate to Mary and what God is trying to communicate to us. This is the key verse. Don't miss it. For nothing, nothing will be impossible with God. Don't take that verse out of context, right? There's a reason that God put a whole story around that verse, This verse helps us understand the story. This verse isn't to be taken by itself. And so often we take this verse, nothing will be impossible with God, and we we create this whole man-centered theology around it. I would like to become a a, a doctor and perform surgeries, and I've never taken a class in biology, but nothing's impossible with God. Or we say, you know what, I have this this, this dream, this, this girl over here who's so beautiful and so lovely and, and she uh, says she wants nothing to do with me, but nothing is impossible with God. Or say, you know what, I, I want this job that I'm totally unqualified for. Nothing is impossible with God. I want to win this basketball game and I can't play basketball, but nothing's impossible with God. Well, that's not what it's saying. I've got some bad news for you. If it feels like that girl is out of your league, she is. You're not going to win the basketball game. Look, God can do incredible things, but that's not what this verse is talking about. Don't miss the context. Here's what he's saying. Every, literally the phrase is this, every word of God will not be impossible. Every word of God, and let's go ahead, and, and this is the main, the main point of the passage that I want you to, to get here. Every word of God, every word of God concerning his kingdom will be fulfilled no matter how impossible. Let me say that again. Every word of God concerning his kingdom will be fulfilled no matter how impossible. That's the point of this passage. Notice that the angel Gabriel doesn't tell Mary a lot about Jesus' further ministry. His first word to Mary is that you are going to have a son who is a king who's going to reign over a kingdom. Every word of God, no matter how impossible, no matter how improbable it seems concerning his kingdom, every word of God, period, will be fulfilled. And in this context, every word of God concerning his kingdom. No matter how improbable, no matter how impossible God's word seems, nothing is more certain. I'm kind of a a science fiction fan. There's a kind of a humorous story that takes place in a book called uh, The Restaurant at the End of the Universe, and it's written by a man named, named Douglas Adams who, who has a very terrible worldview, had a very terrible worldview concerning God, he passed away a few years ago. But the story is kind of an interesting story. It's interesting to kind of think about it. The story of The Restaurant at the End of the Universe kind of goes something like this. There's this restaurant that's at the end of the universe, hence the title. And by end, I don't mean like spatially at the edge of the universe, but at the end of the universe, chronologically, when the universe is coming to an end. Critics of this, critics of the, the restaurant of the universe say, well, that, that's impossible. 
can't be a restaurant at the end of the chronological universe, and yet there it is. And say, well, and furthermore, this, this restaurant at the end of the universe, you can go to it uh, at any time you desire, presuming you can travel through time, and uh, you don't need to make reservations. All you need to do is, is go and eat at this restaurant and then travel back to your own time and make your reservations retroactively, which is impossible. Uh, furthermore, you don't need to pay your, your bill at this restaurant at the end of the universe. Uh, you simply eat your meal, go back in time, make your reservations, take a penny and put it in a savings deposit, and through the miracle of compound interest, your bill will be paid after you've already eaten it in time, which is not only impossible, but it's insane. Okay. I like science fiction because it kind of lets us think about the impossible. God says, look, the things that you call impossible concerning the establishment of my kingdom, I call certain. God is establishing his kingdom. It's inevitable, and no matter how improbable, no matter how impossible it seems, nothing is more certain, and so the application for us is to get on board. You and I should desperately desire to be a part of this kingdom. Let me give you three principles concerning the establishment of God's kingdom that will help us get on board with God's kingdom. The first principle of, of God's kingdom being established is this. God will establish his kingdom with improbable people. God is going to establish his kingdom with improbable people. Look at Mary again. Mary here is this, this young girl She's from this no-account town of, of Nazareth. She's, she's lowly and humble. When the angel appears to Mary and says, you know, Mary, uh, greetings, O favored one, what does Mary do? Are, are you talking to me? Me, really? That's the right response of a person whom God calls upon to do his will. Be honest with me. If an angel appeared to you, and said, uh, greetings, favored one, God is with you, I have this amazing task for you, would some of you kind of like in your heart go, yeah, I can see this. This makes sense to me. I, we could work, I understand why God might pick me. God picks the lowly. And God establishes his kingdom with lowly, humble people. And you know why he chooses the lowly, humble people to establish his kingdom? so that he receives the glory. God uses lowly, humble people so that only he can receive the glory. You know, if I was going to start a business, who would I choose? I'd choose the, the, the hot shots. I'd choose the, the guys that, that were able to, to do the job the best. I'd want to assemble the, the greatest team possible in order to, to, to do the work that I wanted to have done. That's not how God establishes his kingdom. God takes the lowly, God takes the, the young woman in this no-account town of Nazareth and establishes his kingdom with them. God must receive the glory. God must receive the credit. Jeremiah 45, Jeremiah 45 there's this, this great story of Baruch, uh, Jeremiah's scribe, and God has a very special word to Baruch as, as he's trying to receive more credit than, he, than this, the scribe deserves. This is, uh, this is the Lord's word to him. He says, behold, what I've built, I'm breaking down. And what I've planted, I'm, I'm plucking up. That is the whole land. And, and do you, Baruch, do you seek 
great things for yourself, seek them not, for behold, I am bringing destruction, disaster upon all flesh, but declares the Lord, but I will give you your life as a price of war in all the places in which you may go. Are you trying to establish your own kingdom? Are you trying to establish your, your own kingdom and your work and your family? God has some bad news for you. That kingdom is coming to an end. If you're a person who's trying to establish your kingdom to exalt yourself, God says, look, great, go for it. That kingdom's coming to an end. I'm building my kingdom with the lowly, with the humble. The next thing we see here about the establishment of God's kingdom is this. God will establish his kingdom through improbable situations. God will establish his kingdom through improbable situations. And in this situation before us this morning, God establishes his kingdom through the, the birth of his son, born of a, a virgin. God does the unlikely. And again, God does the unlikely in this situation so that we, we know that it comes from him. It's through tragedy, it's through tears, it's through pain that God establishes his kingdom. God establishes his kingdom, first of all, with unlikely people, but he also takes improbable situations, and as he takes these improbable situations, he's, he's molding them together, weaving them together in order to, to, to establish his kingdom through these unlikely situations. I've said this before in the context of talking about caring for orphans, but as you think about a, an orphan that's brought into a family through the, the miracle of, of adoption, it always involves tragedy. No adoption, as beautiful as it is, takes place without tragedy occurring first. And so often our, our temptation is, I want the joy, I want the, the benefit, I, I want things to be great. And God says, that's not the way I establish my kingdom. I establish my kingdom through tears, through improbable situations. And as I work in these unlikely situations or situations through which I'm glorified. Are you willing to be a humble person? God says, look, if you want to be a part of my kingdom, get humble. Do you want God to really use you in your life to establish his kingdom? Get ready for some heartache. Get ready for some difficult times because it's through the difficult times, the unlikely situations, that God establishes the kingdom that he has planned. The third thing that we see is this. The third thing that we see is that God will establish his kingdom for an improbable king. Look again at what the angel says here concerning Jesus. This is really the, the main point of the passage. This isn't a story about this young girl and, and how great her character is, although there's certainly some principles we can gain from, from that. This isn't a story about how cute baby Jesus was in the manger. This is the story about a coming king and the establishment of his kingdom. The person of Jesus is the, the central figure of this revelation of the angel. He's going to be great. He's going to be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He'll reign over the house of, of Jacob forever. Of his kingdom there will be no end. Jesus is a, a king and he's an improbable king, first of all, because of the extent of his kingdom. It's improbable that a kingdom will last forever. You and I have never experienced a kingdom of the magnitude of which God is revealing himself to, to Mary here, the, the, the nature of the kingdom that he's talking to Mary about here. We've never experienced that. We have no reference point for that. And so it's an improbable kingdom because of its extent. 
It's also improbable because of, of its citizenship, how you get to be a, a part of this kingdom. And this isn't necessarily revealed in, in this passage, but as we go through the, the gospel of Luke, we see that a person becomes a citizen of the, the kingdom of, of God, the kingdom that Jesus is going to come to reign over, by humbly submitting themselves and placing their trust and, and faith in the king. This, we told, I told you several weeks ago that I'm, this whole series that we're going through in the gospel of Luke is, is entitled, Jesus, a Savior of the Outcast. Savior of the outcast. It's not the exalted, it's not the great who receive recognition by God, it's the humble, it's the lowly. God's establishing his kingdom for an improbable king. You become a part of this improbable king's reign by submitting to him. That's the focus of the passage. And this king is going to establish his kingdom. It's inevitable, it's improbable, but inevitable. Will you bow the knee to him? Will you submit your life uh, to this king whose reign is coming? If you've ever uh, heard of this comedy group, there's a comedy group called Isaac Air Freight. They were kind of big in the, in the 80s, mid late 70s. They had this great sketch called King Me. And I won't go into all the details, but essentially this, this King Me reigns over the kingdom of himself, figuratively, figuratively this, this castle, this kingdom. And it's talking about ourselves and our tendency to, to want to reign over our own lives. And King Me, as he sits upon his throne, is approached by this king of kings. And the king of kings tells him, get off your throne, allow me to sit on your throne and rule your life. And King Me is, is hesitant, but eventually he acquiesces the throne and allows king of kings to sit on his throne. And King Me gets off. As the sketch goes on, there's a moment in which uh, king of kings comes upon King Me in front of a closet door, King, King of Kings says, what's behind the, the door? And King Me says, well, just, just some hobby things. He opens the door and out come all these little thrones <laughs> that King Me has been storing up for himself to sit upon. There's the throne of money, the throne of music. King Me likes Renaissance disco. There's the, king, the, the throne of pleasure, the throne of wisdom, the throne of habits, the throne of a queen. As King Me says, uh, King of Kings, I'm not sure you know my type. There's the, the throne of spare time. And the question for King Me and, and the question for us is, is, are we going to let Christ reign in our lives? Are we going to, to step off the throne in our hearts and allow Christ to rule richly within them? Think about the different thrones in your life as you think about this establishment of God's kingdom. God does funny things when he establishes a kingdom, doesn't he? God does kind of some quirky things, some reversals. And God's, as God establishes a kingdom, the, the lowly become great. The virgins have children. The peasant becomes a king. God becomes a man. It's improbable. It seems impossible, but the angel tells Mary, every word of God, every word of God will be done. With God, all things are possible. To close this morning, I just ask you to, to meditate, meditate upon that truth. Think about God's word concerning his kingdom being fulfilled. I'd encourage you to, to understand and, and, and just meditate upon this truth, that God is going to establish his kingdom with improbable people, 
He's going to use improbable situations and he's going to, to set up this improbable king. Are you willing to submit yourself to humbly bow the knee to a king whose reign, though improbable, is inevitable? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your reign in our hearts, your reign in our lives. And we would ask now, Father, that you would cause us to submit in humility to you. You'd cause us to understand more fully what your will for our lives is. And we thank you for the, the people that you have given us in our lives who love you and know you. We pray that we would be careful to do all that you've called us to do. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.